Welcome to Talking Direction, the podcast exploring the art and discipline of directing, the artists who stand in the center of the collaborative processes that create theater, film, television, and virtual content enjoyed around the world. I'm Nylan, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League, and today I'm joined by my friend, the Drama League's Artistic Director, Gabriel Selian Shanks. Thanks, Nylan. And I am absolutely thrilled and humbled to be sharing audio space today with one of the legends in our field, the incomparable Liz Diamond. Liz is, of course, the chair of directing at the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale University and resident director at Yale Repertory Theater. As a director, she has led more than 50 productions to world, U.S., and regional premieres, including an acclaimed string of collaborations with Susan Laurie Parks. And they include the America play, The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World, Betting on the Dust Commander, Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom, and Father Comes Home from the Wars. Other productions she has directed include Nilo Cruz's Sotto Voce, Octavio Solis's Gibraltar, and Marcus Gardley's Dance of the Holy Ghost. She's also a specialist in classical works, which includes Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, which she also translated, The Winter's Tale, The Trojan Women, Miss Warren's Profession, Phaedra, Caucasian Chalk Circle, and Miss Julie, among many others. Liz is working with Anna Devere Smith on a theatrical adaptation of the James Baldwin Margaret Mead dialogue, A Rap on Race. And she has served as senior artistic advisor of the Institute for the Arts and Civic Dialogue at Harvard University, as resident director of New Dramatist, and she currently serves on the executive board of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers. She has been awarded the Obie and the Connecticut Critics Circle Awards for Outstanding Direction. She's a graduate of Wesley College and Columbia University and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Burkina Faso for three years, co-founding the Projet de Théâtre Royal, which continues to thrive today. I think it's also safe to say that Liz has taught and inspired generations of exciting directors that have reached millions of people in productions across the globe. And I think that is work that often goes unrecognized, the cycle of knowledge and learning that has rippled outward. So I think we can all be grateful and thankful for Liz Diamond. Welcome, Liz, to Talking Direction. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, I, um, thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you, Nylon. I mean, holy cow. Um, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, blushing and uh, I, I, I don't deserve such, such uh, praise, but I'm very touched and grateful for such a generous, generous introduction. It's I disagree. I disagree one hundred percent. You have a, you've done a few things in your career, and we're really excited, not only to celebrate you, but to talk about those. Um, yes, absolutely, well deserved. Um, Liz, your career really has been one that most of us in the field aspire to. Um, but I'm I'm curious if we could uh, start at the beginning. How did you first come to directing? Oh. And, and did you always know <laughs> uh, you wanted to be a director? Uh, uh, gosh, Nylon, no, I, I really didn't. Um, I sometimes think of myself as like Leo the Late Bloomer, um, um, who's a lion in a children's book who really doesn't, you know, know how to begin to live. Um, I, uh, I did fall in love with the theater as a kid, um, but I kind of kept it as a bit of a 
dirty little secret um, because I couldn't imagine uh, how to do it, how to begin. Um, and I was pretty sure my family would think I was crazy. Um, and uh, so I, you know, studied hard and so on. And I went off to college and I uh, performed in plays, but I studied uh, essentially three things, history, art history, and political science. And uh, uh, I spent my, my third year overseas in Paris and Geneva. Um, and when I finished college, uh, I felt like I was just, you know, staring off the edge of a great big cliff with a gigantic void and fog beyond. Um, and, uh, so, <laughs> so I did, and mind you all through college, I was, I was, I was acting, uh, my, my dad and mom came to see me in a double cast production of, um, Beckett's, uh, Endgame, where I played Clove, but in between each scene, you may recall there aren't a whole lot of scenes in that play, um, the director had decided it would be a great idea if um, <laughs> if uh, we cast the I Ching Book of Changes to discover who would get to play the next scene. And the night they came, I lost every round. And I, I, you know, I, I, it, it was, it was like episode ten, and I was hoping against hope that I'd get to go on, and I didn't get to go on. At which point, I watched my, in the darkness, I could see my dad, who was like the only man in the audience who had a hat, um, put on his hat and kind of, you know, slowly oh. exit the theater, saying, "Excuse me, excuse me." Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Becca would have been a tough call for him on a good day, but you know, it, this was. <laughs> This is a bridge too far. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I, um, I, yeah, I, I thought, and then I joined a, an acting troupe in my fourth year at Wellesley, where uh, I was performing plays in French and traveling around the Northeast corridor and up into Canada, uh, particularly in Quebec, uh, uh, doing doing plays, including Beckett, by the way, where I actually did get to play Clove. And I actually got to play Lucky, if you can imagine, in French, which was super fun. But, you know, all this time I'm thinking, I can't be an actor. This is crazy. And um, so uh, I cast my fortune to the wind and did three things. And I rarely tell this bit. Um, I applied to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Um, I applied to the Peace Corps, which had been a, a, a dream. I was a, a little kid during the Kennedy administration. That's how old I am. Um, and there was something about that uh, um, idea, despite the fact that by the time I was in my late teens and as a student of political science and international relations and having lived in Europe during the Euro-Marxist period, I was acutely aware of how compromised the idea was. Um, nevertheless, the opportunity to immerse myself in another culture, speak other languages, live and work alongside people whose lives were radically different from my own was deeply compelling to me. Um, uh, I had no illusions about what I could teach, but I certainly hoped I could learn and, and share. And uh, and the third thing I did, are you ready? <laughs> this is like insane. I applied to the Yale School of Drama as an actor. Wow. I go 
I, go, I don't think 90% of my students know this. I go into my audition. I only told my brother. He drove me. I go into my audition, and I'm out in the hall in the building where I now have my office, and I'm seeing all these gorgeous young people, you know, doing vocal exercises and stretching and doing all these things to prepare for their audition. And I couldn't, I didn't know what they were doing. And um, <laughs> I mean, I had no idea. And I was really scared. And, but I had prepared, this is even in more insane, um, <laughs> a bit from Beckett's Happy Days featuring a woman approximately five times my age, named Winnie, you may recall. You and I was wearing a, <laughs> a, a, a great long black skirt, yeah. which I thought would be my my hill, you know, and I was going to spread it out on the floor. So my turn comes and I go in and all the auditors are sitting against brightly lit back windows. So I can't see their faces. But Bruce Dean was still the head of the program. And I hear his voice Hello, Miss Diamond. <laughs> oh, I see you're a Beckett fan. And I knelt down on the floor, spread my black skirt around me, thinking this is going to kill them because that is such a genius idea. And I started. And halfway through, thank you so much, Miss Diamond. <laughs> and that was the end of my acting career. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty loony. And... I get into the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, at which point I know exactly what I don't want to do, which is to become a white collar worker in some NGO or federal office. And I think, okay, I guess I'm going overseas. And I wanted to go to West Africa. One of my very closest friends in college was a wonderful Nigerian woman named Onyeka Onwenu. Um, and I wanted to, I, I, it was a part of the world that I had studied and wanted to travel to. And I also wanted to be in a Francophone country because I was by this time quite fluent. And off I went to Burkina Faso, which was then Laut Volta. And I spent three years there and again found myself uh, immersing, I, I, you know, I found young people my age, young African colleagues and friends and um, a wonderful, brilliant man named Prosper Compaure, who was, uh, had gone to Paris uh, uh, to study and had come back having written his doctoral dissertation on theatricalism in, in Mossy performance forms, Mossy, the Mossy ethnic group being the group he was from and which is the dominant ethnic group in Burkina Faso and Prosper was putting together a small company of very young people, and they included uh, young young people in my classes at the university, and um, also their cousins and cousins of you know their brothers and brothers and brothers you know mon frère, and their their the the so the ga gathering together this little company eventually were, um, you know, moped repairmen whose shop was a wooden box under a an acacia tree just outside oh, wow. the main market of, um, of Ouagadougou. Um, another, you know, that was in fact, that particular young, young man was a guy named Hippolyte Wangrana, and Hippolyte is one of the greatest actors I've ever met. Um, and Hippolyte was uh, illiterate. Um, um, uh, an, 
host of great kids, at this point, all of them men. And I, I asked Prosper if I could, you know, join and, and support the work and so on. And Prosper said yes. And I had been reading Paulo Freire and Pedagogy of the Oppressed and was, and, and Brecht, and was inflamed by the idea of what would it mean not to folklorize traditional performance forms, which is what UNESCO was in a way proposing in Burkina Faso at the time by funding a uh, a little national theater project that eventually was, you know, found to be full of folks who were essentially, as the as they would say, buffeting the money, eating the money, um, and essentially putting on plays for the expatriate white people who were living in Ouagadougou um, and the um, aristocratic class of um, Burkinians. And we wanted to propose something else. And it was to put on plays in the streets of Ouagadougou. And if we could possibly have some money to go into the countryside, which was where at that time, essentially 95% of the population lived. At that time, most of Burkina Faso was um, subsistence um, agriculture, uh, farmers and um, non-lettered people. And uh, yet, of course, modernity was encroaching with all of its complex complexities. And all of the colleagues I was working with, including Prosper, had come from villages. This was in the late 1970s. And they were literally the first generation of urbanites. And so they were absolutely bristling with stories they needed to tell about that fault line. That, And it absolutely fascinated me. And in some weird way, I identified with it um, because of my own provincial background. And um, we embarked on making plays. And eventually, I, I think at this point, I would have to say, I was able to exercise my white privilege by cozying up to folks who had big, fancy positions in USAID and in the French mm -hmm. embassy. And I was able to um, meet uh, a, a, an absolutely wonderful young woman named Kate McKee, who was an officer of the Ford Foundation and who was essentially traveling around West Africa looking for projects to fund. And, and Kate heard about this project through the grapevine and met with me and with Prosper and got incredibly excited about this. And at that time, Franklin Thomas, the first African-American president of Ford, had been named. And with the support of President Thomas, uh, we received the whopping sum of $15,000 to launch the Rural Theater Project of Upper Volta. And somewhere in there, I mean, even though on the day-to-day -day I was doing things like, you know, riding my moped into the market to buy 50 kilos of rice that we could take on our next tournée, you know, for our mm -hmm. time out in the, in the countryside, um, and, you know, negotiating with 
makers of talking drums and large calabash drums about how much it would cost to get a complement of those to take on our trips and so on and and you know supporting prospera and rehearsal and in there and writing plays together with the company that would be the centerpiece of a kind of opportunity for a palaver with the village and learning how to create what I suppose I later learned when I came back to the States. By now, I think Augusto Boal's work was becoming very well known in America, in the United States, I should say. And um, and I realized that that was very much the work that we were doing um, in Burkina Faso. So somewhere in there, I realized uh, I... I I, I wanted to be a director, but I still um, reapplied to Fletcher and said, because I, I, I needed a, a landing pad. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, I, I can't go by. And New York terrified me. Um, mm-hmm. Somehow going to Burkina Faso, go, living in Ouagadougou, living, you know, like living in a, in, in a neighborhood where people spoke more and, and, very little French and where I learned more and so on and had no electricity and running water for three years was way less challenging or problematic or scary for me than New York City. And um, when I was admitted again to Fletcher, uh, the young man who eventually became my husband, a Canadian named Ralph Chipman, uh, I wanted him to be super happy for me. And he looked at me really bemused and that pissed me off. I said, what? what? Don't you think it's a good idea? Don't, I mean, aren't you glad for me? <laughs> and he said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's great. I just, what, what? Well, I mean, it's just that, you know, you never really talk about international relations. <laughs> I mean, you're always talking about the theater. And I was, of course, furious because... What was being exposed was that, you know, my behavior was betraying me and I wasn't facing it. And I never looked back. I never, I never went to Fletcher and I came back to New York and I went to Columbia um, because I really needed some education. I didn't know stage right from stage left and there was a lot I needed to learn and I needed a a perch. And uh, I was afforded that perch by by spending some time at school and assisting directors. That's a long story. I'm sorry to go on and on. <laughs> it is such a beautiful story. And I had never heard parts of that. And um, oh, so much to unpack. But I, I, I just want to say to any artistic directors listening, a revival of of Endgame starring Liz Diamond. Uh, yeah. <laughs> her, her father never got to see it. We need to make that happen. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that, um, that's so rich. And, and so uh, after returning to the United States, there is this period. And, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, at the risk of dating us both, I think I first encounter your work in, and I'm trying to piece together the history of it, but I think it's 1989. I was an undergraduate at the time and a professor of mine had had some kind of interaction with Susan Laurie Parks and she took us to see imperceptible mutabilities in the third kingdom. 
and I have aged a lot since then, so my memory isn't what it used to be, but I remember being electrified by it. I remember it being a very sharp production and 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 it consisting of of vignettes that I now sort of think of as, you know, having revolved around the themes we've come to know in her work. Um, you know, since since then, she has, of course, become one of the most important writers um, in the history of world literature. She has inspired generations of writers, including myself. And Me so too. I'd love to figure out how we get from the moment you just told us to the moment where you are a director in New York and you are encountering her writing for the first time. How did how did you come to that conversation and to, you know, what I think so many of us felt about the experimentation she was bringing to language and character and theme in those early plays? Well, uh, let's see now. So I finished up uh, my graduate studies in uh, in the winter of 83, 84. And um, I, you know, my, yeah, my, my, my first job was doing laundry for a production of, um, of, um, uh, Sam Shepard's uh, Tooth of Crime, directed by the late and wonderful George Ferentz uh, at La Mama, and uh, you know, like doing rock and roll laundry, which you can imagine. Um, and uh, anyway, um, but I was directing um, wherever I could, uh, and Ellen Stewart was perhaps the most, uh, you know. She's the mother to many, 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 many people. I look back on her with such love and reverence because it was Ellen who gave me my very first um, opportunity when, again, a bit of a Beckett maniac, um, uh, I uh, I pitched to her with a friend named Ryan Catrona uh, a play, uh, not a play, but a, a short, he called them dramaticules, called Fizzles. Um, and these had never been um, dramatized or, you know, staged. Um, uh, at least I don't think so. Somebody could surface and say, you know what, in 1975. <laughs> you know, but um, I, I had no knowledge of other productions, prior productions of this work. And um, and we wrote uh, to Beckett thanks to um, uh, Barney... Um, the wonderful, wonderful publisher of Grove Press, whose name I'm blanking on, and that is a crime because this was a great, great contributor to American and world dramatic literature. Um, but um, he gave us Beckett's address in Paris, and we wrote to him, and Beckett wrote back on a business card, which just had his name, and in his ink were written the words, if you must. <laughs> 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 and, you know, which was kind of hilarious, and um, and that production was my, uh, which uh, we 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 rehearsed and did a workshop of at La Mama, and then took to Mark Russell at PS one twenty two, and Mark Russell, God love him, said, mm -hmm. "Well, you can have the eleven p.m. slot for three weekends in October, something like this." It was part of the Under the Radar Festival, one of the first Under the Radar festivals. And we said, yes, yes, yes. And the only night Mel Gasso could come, and he wanted to come because it was Beckett, was dress rehearsal. 
and in he came. And that gave me my first New York Times review, which was characteristically characteristic of Mel Gussow, gentle and modest, but praising of the project and notably of the actor and, of course, of the great Beckett's uncanny writing and poetry. Um, and that helped me get started. And something about that led folks with very poetic writing to reach out to me. Charles Borkus, Laura Harrington. Um, I worked with Mac Wellman, who I, whose work I adored and who I adore. Um, uh, and it was Mac who was launching in the late 80s, in 1987, 88, a workshop called, I don't know, the New Writers Project uh, at uh, a then unknown but incredibly fabulous hip little enclave in Brooklyn in a repurposed parochial school on, I think it was Fulton Street, called Baca Downtown. Yes. And Mac was gathering together some extraordinary young people. And among those was Susan Laurie Parks. And I believe, legend has it, and I think this is a story Susan Laurie has told, she was on the subway after a show and recognized Elisa Solomon, then writing for The Village Voice, and sidled up to Elisa and shyly asked if Elisa might might read a play of hers. And Elisa was wonderful and said, sure. And I think it was Elisa who lateraled that work to Mac. Although again, these are, these are, I'm speaking from memory, which is always a treacherous thing to do. (laughs) And Mac read this work and apparently ran downstairs or Susan Laurie read it out loud. I don't know what happened. And Mac said to Greta Gunderson, the extraordinary painter who alas has now passed away, but who was the founding creator of Baca downtown, we got to do this. And, uh, it launched the first Fringe Festival at Baca Downtown in 1988 in a workshop because Susan Laurie and I both felt we needed time to work on it. And uh, so that was a workshop. And then we spent the next year getting ready for the production at Baca Downtown in 1989. So it was Mac who introduced us. And of course, it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion by any means that I would have the incredible good fortune to direct this, but rather um, Susan Laurie met with me at the Opera Cafe across from Lincoln Center, a day I'll never forget when it was pouring rain and we sat in a booth and from the moment, I don't know who walked in the door, she or I, and but the moment I laid eyes on her, I just burst into a grin and we started talking and by the end of the time we were hanging out, we were finishing each other's sentences and laughing our heads off. And, um, I, it was for me, I will speak from the eye, um, (laughs) a a coup de foudre. I, I fell in love with a writer and their voice. I had read the play. I was absolutely thrilled and confounded by it but I had read bits of it out loud and there, I, it was, there's, the voice was unmistakable. 
And and yeah. I say that despite yeah. the fact that when I read it, I had no clue how to think of it as one as one thing. Um, it was it was a tetraptic, and I had no idea how to stage it. But I could feel and hear um, the power of of not just the the, the, the sheer uh, beauty and brilliance of the wordplay and the poetry, but also the um, the depth, the, the the emotional depth of these characters. What she was sounding culturally was um, huge, vast, and deep. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I I think there was this, and you you're mentioning so many writers who are in. Um, a particular, mo- you know, that the, the, uh, all roads lead to Mac Wellman in some way. And, and uh, I had the privilege of working with Charles Borkus on a number of plays a couple of decades ago. And, and there, and there is something even among these extraordinary writers that um, that first moment when you encounter Susan Laurie, um, it is, it, it is interesting to hear you say you fell in love with a writer. I, I spent much of my, uh, graduate school years, um, terribly imitating her, um, uh, in, in my writing. Um, but there, there is such a singularity to her experience. So, you know, it's just wonderful to hear you speak about that moment, um, of connection. Um, Mm. and it, and it did create such a extraordinary body of work at Baca downtown and, and at so many, um, you know, it, it, it began a, a journey for the American theater that I think uh, I'm, it's just wonderful to hear. I, I'm sitting here a little moved as a writer myself and, and hearing that story and, and, and that process. But, yeah. but shifting a little bit or going down the same lane, I should say, uh, in, in researching your career, Liz, I, I came across a quote of yours that I, um, I've been thinking about a lot. And in an interview earlier in your career, you, you stated that your goal as a director is to give plays space. And mm. you said, and I quote, I think that words deserve a home. They have to have a space to resonate in. The space mm. has to entice you and make you curious. It has mm. to put you in a dual state of alertness and relaxation. Otherwise, you can't hear the play. There has to be a <laughs> sense of beauty and grace and sensuality to the space to make you feel good, to give you pleasure, end quote. I love that quote. <laughs> and, 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 first off, I'm, I'm sure. I said that. It's not too bad. <laughs> you did well. You did well. That's <laughs> me. Well, I'm sure your thoughts have evolved over the years, but I wonder is, is this still the foundation of your directing practice? Has it changed? Where are you now? I don't think I'm nearly as articulate now <laughs> as, as, <laughs> as that suggests I might once have been. Um, but I do believe that emphatically and very much to this day. And do you know, I, um, I mean, I think of, gosh, uh, I think of, 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 of the theater as, you know, a, a space for, you know, the creation and the experience of poetry in three and four dimensions. And I suppose when I say that, what do I mean? Um, that, that, that it is 
that it is a, a, a dance of word and image, right? And um, and that is going to operate, one hopes, on on that audience member, um, and and on that on that group of people, um, to open up parts of their spirit that uh, perhaps have been um, at rest or dormant or suppressed or closed, you know, that, that, that is going to open up channels of perception and self-perception that are not necessarily offered an opportunity to open up on a daily basis because of the limits of our little puny human lives, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the, what you might call, this is a, perhaps an unfortunate image to use because it's related to a, a weapon, but the bore of our lives is rather narrow bore, right? You know, I, I, I remember sort of thinking to myself during, during the, the, the lockdown days of the pandemic, you know, that I was slowly digging a trench down Carmine Street, which is where I live, to get to the Hudson River. And I was, I, I couldn't believe how, if you will, narrow my range was, you know, in, in, in where I would walk and, you know, the repetitious nature of, of my daily life. Um, uh, and, and I think that art simply plays a profoundly expansive role in our lives. Uh Um, and that's what I want my productions to do. And, you know, fail again, fail better, (laughs) to quote our friend, is kind of, sort of, I suppose, what every artist is ultimately doing, right? But um, uh, that's the, that's the dream. That is the dream. And I, and I think I'd love to maybe use this thought and, and, you know, I am, I will admit to sitting over here writing notes for myself down as you speak, Liz, about the dance of word and image and, and how the, we open up channels of perception. I'd love to use this to sort of pivot to your work as an educator and as a mm-hmm. teacher at Yale. I, I, you know, what I said in the intro, I, I really deeply believe to be true. I think there are few, if, if any, educators of directors in America who have had a more profound impact on the field than you have. Mm-hmm. What is important to you in that work today, in that work of... Um, helping artists find their thing in the in the sphere of directing, you know, and I and I guess I just want to also add to I think one thing we're encountering a lot at the Drama League right now with the artist because you know we we share many alumni between the Yale yeah, program and yeah. the Drama League program, um, you know, directors are being increasingly and rapidly called upon to rethink to rethink process to rethink history. To, to iterate new ways of working and and specifically I think to counter inequities in the field the you know the ways yeah. that creation intersects with race and class and gender and sex and immigration status and a host of other inequities in the world so I'm wondering if if you know and I realize this is a big question but sort of how does your work as an educator fit into your creative identity? And then how are you thinking directors maybe should come to these concerns in their work? Is it is it the same as it has always been? Or are there new things that directors should be considering in this moment? 
Oh, that's a great question. And it's one I'm asking like constantly, right? Uh, as are my colleagues, um, my fellow teachers, um, and, and, and our students as well. Um, let's see if I can, if I can unpack some coherent thinking on this. Um, I, uh, I mean, it, 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 it is a very interesting and challenging time for someone to declare themselves a director. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the, the term itself uh, connotes um, an assumption of positional power that um, across our society is being challenged, right? Um, You know, in every sector Um, and in the arts sector, I think that the director is um, in the theater is exposed uh, to the same kind of of, uh, of, 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 of of a critique about the assumptions that go along with claiming a primary creative role in a collaborative uh, in a collaborative um, enterprise. Um, you know, by what right does a director say, I'm a director and I would like to do this play and these are my ideas and I would love to bring a, a group of people together to make this happen, right? Um, uh, what sort of hubris has to be involved? What sort of, and how can a person who's thinking about being a director, trans, you know, think deeply about the responsibilities that are concomitant with that with, with that assumption of, with that, with that role. Um, I, I think what I'm seeing and I'm, it's so powerful and moving to me, um, among the directors I'm teaching, uh, now, and, and this has been true for a number of years, um, is that, that I think, I think there's a new, and necessary effort on the part of young directors to cultivate in themselves a more conscientious relationship to their values. Um, In other words, I I, I think in past generations, and I, I would, again, I would speak from the eye, I I imagine that as a young director, I liked to think of myself as open, as collaborative, as having a certain kind of emotional intelligence that would create a safe space for people to work and play together in. And I kind of took it for granted that that was true, but I'm not sure that I spent the kind of imaginative time that I see that I'm frankly spending now as a teacher with my students and that my students themselves are taking a lead in undertaking a kind of conscious, the development of a more conscientious practice um, of, 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 of how to be accountable to one's colleagues how to be accountable to one's, uh, to, to, to all those um, with whom one's engaged, uh, 
uh, in making a work of theater art. Um, I feel like I have to now be reminded of what the question was, lest I go I, off the I, rail. I think you're answering it completely. I think it, just as directors are shifting in this moment to this more um, conscientious approach to their practice, I think it it automatically requires those of us who work in an educational sphere with these artists to shift as well. And so how is that, how are these thoughts changing you and, and the way that you approach your work? Well, I think as a teacher, one of the things I'm finding um, that this is, is helping me do is I'm, 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 I'm striving to slow down, um, you know, uh, uh, I think there's a figure in one of Anna Devere Smith's shows, but it's certainly something Anna talks about a lot, about the necessity to stop and think, you know, stop and think. And I think, you know, if I were to make a T-shirt for what it takes to be a teacher, um, it, that might be one of them. The other one might be whatever happens, don't panic. Um which is also a t-shirt I would give to a director, um, you know, and, but, but to stop and think and to really, really listen. Um, and even at times to shut down one's own thinking so that one's perceptions aren't rapidly running down the field and turning into misperceptions, but to just make sure I'm hearing the student's question, the student's struggle, the student's anguish, the student's need. And again, I think when I was younger, I might have thought that I I was doing a pretty good job at that. But I'm 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 feeling like increasingly humble <laughs> about about that. That it you don't achieve it, right? I mean, and I know that this kind of phrasing is very common right now, but it really is a practice, right? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's, you know, you have to re-up every, every morning and every night. And mm -hmm. um, that, that extends through everything. And it's very much to me the gift, the gift of Black Lives Matter, the gift of the work of, you know, we see white American theater and the reckoning that's been um, demanded um, of, of the American theater and certainly of white theater artists in particular. It's just such a profound moment and a, and a profound thought. And I know we, we have another question that you, you have planned to ask an island, but I, I just want to sit in the strength of that thought for a second and, and really talk about how, you know, the formulation that Liz just did of this moment that includes struggle, that includes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the necessity to stop and think as a gift, as a, as a, I, I think so many of us in this field, um, you know, and, and certainly the the artists who are speaking with us, Nylon, at the Drama League, are coming to this moment in um, suffering trauma of the pandemic, suffering trauma of climate change, suffering trauma mm -hmm. of the economic collapse of our industry. Um, to to have Liz frame this as a moment of uh, of possibility of gift 
of, of strength. Um, I, I'm just deeply moved by it. Um, I wish mm-hmm. I could be as uh, <laughs> literate as Liz has been about it, but I, and I know I, we should move on, but I just, it felt like such an impactful idea that I just wanted to, you know, uh, do a, a audio highlighter over it. <laughs> really, really, really important thought. Thank you, Liz. I completely agree. I, 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 I just want to, I want to say one, I, I, thank you for that offering. I think it, I, cause I think that's actually doable. Um, yeah. and we, we're given a lot of thoughts, but we have to, they have to stay actual and not just aspirable. Um, mm. um, and, and, and because the action is what's going to actually change us. And, mm. and, and I felt that, uh, that, that idea aligned with something that was actionable and a way to move forward. Um, so you're, you're a director in residence at Yale Rep, um, along with Liliana Blaine Cruz and, um, yes, Woodward, yes. Um, humans yeah. I love. Right, <laughs> right. Incredible women. Oh my God. You get to work uh, closely with uh, artist director and drum league alum Jim Bundy. And um, I'm just, mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering how does your work at the Debbie Geffen School of Drama intersect with Yale Rep or, 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 or do they? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, well, you know, um, I think I'm trying to think how to, uh, they, they, they do, um, in ways that let's see, you know, at, in this current moment, and as long as I've been chair of the directing program, which I guess goes back now to 2004, um, uh, you know, student directors don't, direct at the rep. We have an exceptional situation coming up this year in which a current now uh, fourth year director, Christopher Betts, is going to be directing Choir Boy uh, by Terrell McCraney, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary opportunity. um, And one for which I bless Terrell and, and, and the rep. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for, for Christopher's work on this project. Um, But normally uh, students are not directing at the rep, they are assisting at the rep. And I'm often, um, you know, I support that work and counsel them and coach them and encourage them um, when they are in those processes with guest directors um, or with resident directors. When I'm directing at the rep, I always have a student director assisting me. And that's always a a blast. You know, it's a, it's a, it's just a joyful opportunity to, you know, have them see me in a, in a, in in ways like in in the way in the vulner in the vulnerabilities that are particular to the task of directing right you know when i sit there looking kind of dumbfounded because an actor asks me a question that i have absolutely no clue how to answer you know that kind of thing um which you can talk about you know you can share anecdotes and so on with 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 students forever but it's when they see you in the muck that I think a new kind of perspective uh, happens, and yes. that and that's that's a wonderful opportunity. Um, um, we uh, all of the students, of course, go to all the rep shows, and we we critique them afterwards. We sit and we talk together. We invite rep directors to come into the directing program and sit with us and share with us 
their ideas, their experiences. We've had, of course, Carl Cofield and Laurie Woolery. And when Robert Woodruff was directing at the Rep, Robert would come in. Of course, he also taught in the program, which was thrilling. Um, uh, so those are some of the ways that I dock with the Rep as a teacher and the way, and of course, the students are doing a tremendous amount of work study at the Rep, um, you know, wielding sea wrenches and climbing ladders <laughs> and wearing hard hats and whatnot, um, um, and being members of, of run crews um, and so on. So there's a way in which the work of the Rep is massaged into the work of the school. I'm, you know, I have loads of ideas of ways I would love to deepen that um, uh, for the directing students. Um, uh, but that's kind of how it is at the moment. I um, am sad to say that we are coming close to the end of our time, but we do have um, two more questions for you. And, and this one I'm just going to leave really open-ended, Liz. I am curious about... Uh, in this moment, what you think is your next chapter? What What's next for you? What's on your horizon, either as a director, educator, person in the world? Um, you know, the overworked cliche is what's on your bucket list that you would like to do? Um, <laughs> does, does anything come to mind? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you know, um, oh, gosh, I mean, you know, the, 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 the answer that immediately comes to mind is I kind of picture myself on a on a on a windy shore staring out at the water for a while you know? <laughs> <laughs> with a book half finished you know um so that's one image uh and it could be just about anywhere it doesn't have to be warm i love the winter shore you know but i love nature and being outdoors and moving my body and running and i that i i yearn for more of in my life than i am able to make possible these days um so that is a kind of, you know, a, a dream. Um, I want to, um, I, I want to, I want to do more directing. Um, you know, I, I have to say that, um, you know, my so-called career, um, I mean, I, I've always loved, I think it was Louise Nevelson, uh, who, or no, it was, it was Helen Frankenthaler who said, you know, artists don't have careers. They have problems and they try to solve one and then they, <laughs> and then they put it aside and then they take another one and they put Ooh, it aside. The truth. That's right. I think that is exactly right. But, you know, so I, you know, I've been so, uh, I've allowed myself to be so swamped by, by the, by the work that I'm doing that, you know, I've taken very little care of, you know, my, my career, I don't even have a website, you know, um, which is pathetic, but, uh, I do have projects I want to do. Um, I'm truly looking forward to working on a radio play with Nilo Cruz, um, at two rivers, which I'm hoping is going to happen soon. And I have a book I want to adapt, um, uh, which is a project I've never undertaken something quite this ambitious, which I'd love to make happen. And then there are still a whole bunch of plays I want to do, um, uh, including, you know, whatever the next iteration of Father Comes Home from the Wars, to have an opportunity to continue that journey um, would be glorious. So those are some of the things. <laughs> That's fun. Good things. <laughs> well, uh, 
to, to wrap this up, um, and before we go, uh, at the end of each episode here, we've we've asked a question, um, but it feels especially <laughs> you know, really relevant to bring to you, and you kind of already answered it a little bit. So mm-hmm. if you could, I, I'd like to ask you to think back to your 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 early sense of yourself as a director um and then the first moment you're thinking of uh pursuing directing your art and your career and if you could speak to that younger self that that very early stage self one piece of advice would you share with him um, oh what a beautiful question oh my god <sighs> all right i'm gonna say this is exactly what has come into my mind first I would say, do not be afraid. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time as a young artist afraid mm-hmm. that I was, I, and I, I, as a young woman, I, I, I experienced a feeling in my, into you know, between age twenty-five and forty of, you know, incredible pressure to, you know find my footing as a director, gain a foothold in this, you know, difficult profession that is so, so unsupported by, by our culture, by our, by our, our government, Um, you know, uh, an art that I feel should be an entitlement. Um, And I was wanting a family and a child, and I wanted to pay my way in my marriage and be a full contributing member of society and, you know, contribute to school boards and community boards and, you know, do it all. And, and, and I was always living with this sense of, of intense pressure and fear that I, I wouldn't achieve all of those things that I wanted in my life. And that I was letting myself down and people I loved down. And I would say, for Christ's sake, relax. (laughs) (laughs) Calm down. Just calm down. (laughs) And um, yeah, you know, live. Live in the moment. Live and don't be afraid. And don't be afraid. Mm. Uh, A brilliant advice. Advice we we all need, especially now when so many things are designed to try to scare us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do not be afraid. We can do this. Liz Diamond, thank you so much. What a wonderful uh, way to spend an afternoon. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, both of you. So appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Talking Direct. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Dromley. Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York, America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening. 